everybody, welcome. My name is David Bell, and I am the host of this interview, the guest host here on Authors on the Air, and I'm really pleased to be here. I really feel fortunate to get to chat today with Richard Chismar, who is here. You can see him right there in the other half of the screen. Um, we're really here because just last week, Richard's book, Chasing the Boogeyman, came out. Um, getting all sorts of wonderful acclaim and attention as it should. Um, I, I love to be able to say this. I was fortunate to read an early version of the book, an early copy of the book, and it really, it really did blow me away. It's a great book. If you haven't read that yet, you've still got time to go buy one and check it out. I'm just going to give a real quick introduction of Rich and then. We're just going to chat wherever the conversation goes. The conversation goes about writing or whatever, or maybe, I don't know if Rich wants to talk about the Baltimore Orioles season. No, he doesn't want to. Uh, so we'll avoid that topic, I guess. But so real quick, I'll just tell you a little about Richard. He is the co-author with a guy named Stephen King of the New York Times bestselling novella, Gwendy's Button Box. He's published a number of story collections like The Girl on the Porch, It's a Long Way Home. The Long December. Um, his stories have appeared in a number of different publications and best of anthologies. He has won two World Fantasy Awards, four International Horror Guild Awards. He's a speaker at conferences and workshops. That's how I first met him. I went to a writing workshop many thousands of years ago, and Rich was one of the teachers there. And he was very kind and encouraging to me, and he was that way to everybody. Um, so anyway, that's that's the deal on Rich. You can find him online, richardchismar.com. He's on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Rich, how are you doing today? Welcome. I'm good. Thanks for asking me to do this. Well, you know, I, I had the opportunity to ask someone to come on here and chat with, and your book was coming out. And like I said, I was able to read your book before it came out. I thought it was just one of the best books I've read this year. I'm not saying that just because you're sitting here. Uh, it was a re it's a really, it, one of the things about writing in suspense and mystery and horror and all those genres is it's really hard to do something original. It's really hard to come up with something original. Right. And I think you did it here. You actually came up with a book that is really original. Do you want to just talk a little bit about the concept behind this book and what makes it so unique? Um, you know, I'll, I'll admit first, right out of the gate that, that it was an accidental, you know, it was one of those happy accidents that, that made it so original. I would love to be able to like hold up a, a dated outline from, you know, two years back and, 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 you know, say uh, this brilliant, you know, this, this was my brilliant plan all along, but uh, it just kind of fell in my lap. I, 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 I always knew I wanted to write a novel set in my hometown. You know, I grew up in a, in a place called Edgewood in Maryland, um, very much a working class blue collar town, a military town. We're surrounded by two military bases. Um, and, you know, in, in it's in Hartford County in Maryland. And we're, we're kind of the, uh, you know, Edgewood was, you know, back in 88 was kind of considered the wrong side of the tracks for a lot of people. You know, we weren't one of the more affluent neighborhoods. Like I said, we we're definitely blue collar. Um, and, uh, I always knew I wanted to write a book set there because I had a great childhood, uh, still close with a bunch of my childhood friends, you know, very much like scenes out of, uh, you know, Stephen King's, the, the body or stand by me, you know, we were always outside, always together. And, um, 
but I always figured it was going to be a big, scary horror book, like, you know, it or, or, uh, Dan Simmons' Summer and Night. Um, but I couldn't shake this, this, this idea for a crime novel. And, uh, just to give you a, a brief non-rambling, hopefully, um, you know, idea insight into where the novel came from back in the uh, late eighties in Edgewood, um, there was a guy breaking into homes, uh, usually through open doors, unlocked doors or windows at night. And he would, he was, he was caressing the women, their hair or their legs or their arms while they were sleeping. And when they woke up, you know, obviously startled, scared to death, he would just take off and disappear into the night. And the guy did this like 30 times and was never caught. Um, and the newspapers started calling him the phantom fondler, which everyone talked about. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember our little town. Um, you know, it was like being, it was like being in a horror movie. Um, you know, people started buying deadlocks and floodlights and uh, obviously they started locking their doors and windows and there were more police patrols and there were rumors that people were setting traps outside their houses and people were buying guns and, and the guy was never caught. He was he, eventually he was arrested in the nineties in Baltimore city, um, for an unrelated crime. And he admitted to, to these break-ins and they had evidence which matched up. So they knew he was telling the truth, but, uh, that, that, that time period always stuck in my mind. And back during the summer of 88, I had just graduated from college and I was engaged to be married. And uh, Kara and I, my fiance, we decided that instead of, you know, getting an apartment, then we would wait until we got married and I would move back home and save some money for, for nine months until the wedding. Um, so it was a really interesting time. You know, I was fresh out of college. I was working on the first issue of Cemetery Dance. I was writing horrible short stories and submitting them everywhere. And some of the horrible stories were actually selling. Um, and here I was kind of on the threshold of adulthood, yet I was moving back into the house I grew up in. I was having dinner every night with my parents. And this madman was, you know, running around town at night, terrorizing, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, the women in, in, in Edgewood. So immediately, you know, my brain turned it, you know, uh, immediately, you know, kind of looked at it and said, what if, what if this guy's actions, what if he escalated like these, like they often do. And instead of just caressing, you know, he was, he was murdering people. So that's a really long winded way of describing, um, you know, where kind of how I came up with the idea. Um, and then, you know, what, what you're talking about the, you know, kind of the storytelling format I chose was I'm a big true crime fan. So, I knew at some point I wanted to write a book that was set, you know, that, that was formatted um, as a true crime, you know, book. And uh, that's what I chose to do with Chasing the Boogeyman. I, I, at the end of each chapter, there are photographs. Um, I didn't want to advertise the photographs because I wanted the reader to just turn the pages, get to the end of a chapter, see these pictures, actually get a visual of the places that he's, you know, they've just read about and the people. And uh, that's kind of, you know, it, it, it all just kind of fell on my lap. I, it's the way the story really needed to be told. And those photos that are in there, are those photos you took and are those of the actual of your actual town? Like you're. Using, yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. The, yeah. The photo, I, you know, I, I show, uh, excuse me, a photo of the house I grew up in. That's it. The library I went to all the time as a kid. You know, I tried to make it as realistic as possible. Um, in, in my mind, I really did write a true crime book. I would, I just. You know, I, I was too lazy to, to do all the research on, on real crime, so I made it up. You know, I had the best of both worlds, you know. Um, I, I, like I said, I'm a big true crime fan, and I always really respect the writers who do that. You know, um, 
because I think they go to a place that is pretty deep and dark um, to, to write these books. And the, the amount of research they do has to just be overwhelming. So, yeah, I've always joked that I, I want to write a true crime book, but, you know, I can't deal with all that research. So th this was my chance to just make it up. Well, you know, it, I, I've read reviews, you know, things people wrote on Goodreads and, and other reviews. And I had this experience when I read the book that I would find myself believing that the book was true. Right. Because of the photos and, and the way it was written, I, I would find myself believing that this was really happening. Not in the way that you're supposed to believe that fiction is happening, but but I was I found myself thinking this was nonfiction and right. had to remind myself this is fiction meant to look like nonfiction. So it had the effect of messing with my head as a reader, which was one of the pleasures of the book. Well, when you so kindly read an early version, it didn't have the afterword, which, you know, the afterword, which the publisher asked me to include, um, it, that, that kind of gives you a, a glimpse behind the curtain and answer some questions that, that I'm sure readers have floating around in their heads. So you didn't get a chance to read that and, and nor did any of the other writers who, uh, who were kind enough to provide me with, with blurbs. Um, and there's one gentleman, I won't, I won't mention his name, brilliant writer, great guy. Um, I guess I didn't explain to him well enough ahead of time that, uh, that it was, you know, a, a combination of, of fact and fiction, but it was indeed a novel. And he wrote back and gave me a wonderful blurb and had a list of questions mm -hmm. because he believed it to be real. And I had to uh, go after the fact that, you know, it was a little embarrassing for me, not him to, to have to say, Oh, you know, I, I made that part up, you know, all the, all the stuff about myself is, is pretty accurate, but uh, you know, the rest of it is came out of my imagination. Well, it seems like the perfect format for a book now. The reason I was saying it was original is because there's always been true crime writing for a long time. And, right. and now we're in this wave in the last however many years of true crime podcasts and true crime documentaries on Netflix and places like that. There's been a lot of that. But I don't know of anyone who's written a book quite like this, but this seems like the perfect next step. Right. In this true crime world we're in is that now you would have books that are pretending to be true crime when they're actually fiction and mess. Yeah, I, I, I'm in a mess out of all of this, I'm sure. And now it's going to be a mess. No, no one's going to know what to believe. Uh, but that was my original intention. It, 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 the phrase I've used all along is I, I wanted to Blair Witch everybody. Right. I, I wanted to, uh, you know, my original plan was no – the version you read, I believe it was titled Just the Boogeyman, and it had a subtitle, A True Story of Small Town Horror. Um, that's okay. what I wanted on the book. Um, the only one who had an early inkling that this might not be such a, a good idea was my, my oldest son, Billy, who's also a writer. And he was he was pretty adamant. Um, and I was amused by it because he doesn't he's usually not a warrior. But he's like, Dad, you can't you can't you can't try to pass this off as real. You're going to like lower property values in Edgewood and you're going to get people upset. And, and I was just like, no, Billy, I'm going to, you know, the plan was, is I was going to plant a, a fake website online, mm. you know, have it be yeah. dated like 1993 and it be incomplete. Like it was never updated, continued to be updated. I was going to plant some fake newspaper articles. Um, and then I, I really wanted Billy, who's also a filmmaker. I wanted him to, to do a documentary kind of like the one they did for the Blair Witch Project, which kind of explained the background of the, uh, of the curse and the witch. Right. And I wanted to do like a half an hour documentaries that people could Google and find online. Um, 
But once we sold the book to Simon & Schuster, they really quickly, you know, legal department was like, no, you know, we're going to have to have a disclaimer page. And it's it's good that you have this afterward, which explains it. And and they put a novel on the front cover, which was fine. But it would have been more fun if I was trying to purposely screw with people. I wish you had done all that because because I found, you know, like like I said, as I was reading, uh, even even though I think I did know it was a novel, I found myself thinking I need to go, I need to Google this, I need to see what really happened with this. I need to, you know. So I think that would be interesting. So yeah, I think I think they should have let you do all that. I mean, if you know, and if you'd been sued, it wouldn't have been my problem, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it would have been more fun. Would have been entertaining for me, not for you, if that had all gone wrong. But yeah, no. So that's interesting. Well, so since you brought up this whole idea of part of the seed of this was living back in your hometown and writing about your hometown. And the book is set in 1988. It seems like a I've, I've noticed this in some of your other work and it seems like a lot of, um, especially like horror fantasy, you know, like the Ray Bradbury, Stephen King kind of vein of things. There is a lot of nostalgia in those stories, a lot of looking back and, and I don't know, why do you think that is that we, we look back, to times when we're younger or to a town when it was younger and we and we write about it but yet we are unearthing some horrific things sometimes when we do that why do you think that is yeah that's actually a really good question i i you know i can only speak from you know for myself that you know i i'm i'm a really you know happy grateful guy for a guy in the 50s you know, you know in his 50s i uh wake up every day you know thankful for the life i have um, so, so when I look back, it's not because I'm this miserable old guy who, uh, you know, is looking back and yearning for, for younger days. Um, I just think, I think it's because, you know what, from that early age, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew, you know, I talk about it in chasing the boogeyman. Um, so for me, it's kind of, it's a little bit like stepping in that time machine and being able to go back um, in a much with which with much more self-awareness that, you know, hey, I, I am going to write about this one day. And and also, you know, you, you can't help you can't overlook just the simple, you know, sentiment of, you know, you're back with your friends. You know, I, I saw a meme a couple months ago and everyone is probably I, like I'm a techno idiot and, and I'm slow online, even though I, I love the social media aspect. Um, so everyone probably saw this like five years ago. I saw it two months ago and it just floored me. There was a meme that said at some point in your childhood, you, you know, you and all your friends went outside and played together for the last time. Mm-hmm. And I just read that and I was like, oh, you know, how simple and true and powerful that is. Because I had, a, like I said, I had a great childhood. It was very much like the wonder years. You know, we played kick the can and wiffle ball and we played marbles and traded baseball cards. And, you know, we all knew about each other's first girlfriend and first kiss and all that. You know, we were, we were, uh, you know, we, we were tight. And uh, at some point all that went away. So, you, you know, you're looking back to those kind of days that, you know, and, and, and again, the, 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 the famous line from Stand By Me from King, you know, uh, essentially it says, you know, you never had friends later on like the ones you did when you were 12. And even if you have great friends, you know, in adulthood, how true is that statement? So I think a lot of looking back is just simply, if you were fortunate enough to have those things, it is just kind of looking back at a safe you know, safe and happy place, even if you are a relatively, you know, healthy and happy guy later on in life. Um, and as far as readers, I think the, the same sentiment, you know, I think a lot of them, you know, they're, they're busy, they're hustling, struggling, 
um, succeeding. It's none of it is easy. And you, you look back to childhood when you woke up and you, you ate breakfast and you opened your door at eight 30 in the morning, no cell phones. Um, uh, yeah. kind of just, everything was out there waiting for you. You know, who's the first friend you ran into? And then are we going to go to so-and-so's house? Let's, you know, we can't, no, we can't go to his house. He has a doctor's appointment, but guess what? There was five other choices. And by the end of the day, you're all together and you're all sweaty and grass stained and your parents are, you know, it's okay to be out because the neighborhood's safe. So it was just a different time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, have you heard from people in the town, these friends of yours and people who were there back in 1988 or in your childhood, have you heard from them who people who've read the book and are like, Hey, you got this right. You got this wrong. Or this is so-and-so, or I know that's so-and-so. Absolutely. And I just answered a, a very lengthy um, message on Facebook uh, about an hour ago from uh, a a woman who, who, you know, we were friends when we grew up, she was a few years younger than me. And um, just the kindest note she's actually on vacation writing me this note uh, as she's she's about halfway through the book and i told her i said you know what i you know when i finished this book this was, it was a very personal book and when i finished it i i thought you know what i don't know if anyone's going to want to read this i remember telling my son that i was like don't fret and worry about the whole you know trying to pull a fast one because i don't know whether five people are going to read this or 50,000 and, and that's not my concern but i do remember when i was finished I thought this is such a personal story with so many personal private memories of mine that, yeah, I, I'm, you know, maybe no one will want to read it. But what I found is hearing from all these Edgewood folks who, who I grew up with and, and folks who are much younger than me, but are, you know, grew up in Edgewood and, and many are still there is that, you know what? I, I wasn't writing about just my own memories. I was writing about all of ours because there's so many shared experiences there. Um, you know, I talk about the Myers house, the, the, the local haunted house in town. Guess what? You know, people who are 20 years younger than me are still talking about that house as the haunted house in Edgewood. So it struck a chord and that's been the biggest kind of bonus and surprise from, from, you know, publication is that these, these people have, uh, you know, there's threads online on Facebook and I just, you know, I get to read them and it's wonderful. You know, it's like we all stepped in that time machine together. Yeah, I mean, in a way, because you're a writer, you become the one who's telling the story of that place. You're you're speaking in a public way for all of those people, right? I mean, I mean, I guess in a way, did you feel responsibility because, in a sense, you're representing that place and telling a story about that place, right? So you kind of felt like you really had to get it right. Yeah, you know what? I didn't really feel the weight of that until publication. It was interesting because I, I certainly felt very similar to how I felt when I wrote. Um, Gwendy's button box or Gwendy's magic feather. I, I felt the response because I was, uh, you know, I was treading on sacred ground in Castle Rock, you know, in the, in the Stephen King universe. So I certainly felt a huge responsibility and, and it, it didn't weigh on me um, because I knew I just kind of had to do my own thing and, 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 and be confident in it. Um, but when the book came out, I was doubly grateful that Steve wrote that preface to the second book to Gwendy's magic feather, because I I think it probably eliminated a lot of people asking who the hell is Chismar and why is he writing about Castle Rock and who does he think he is? So I was really uh, appreciative of that, that he did that. Um, But yeah, the same thing with Edgewood, you know, it, it, it's, it's obviously not sacred ground in, in the way that Castle Rock is, but you know, it's a real place. A lot of real people came from there and still live there. And uh, once the book came out, yeah, the little light bulb in my head kind of went off and was like, oh, boy, I hope they like it. 
Well, yet, so you talked very eloquently about the nostalgia for childhood and the great memories and looking back fondly, but you have written this book in which there is a murderer on the loose in that town. So what is it about the small town? There are a lot of stories, crime stories and horror stories, you know, Castle Rock's a great example, all that, um, where you have the idyllic looking town and yet when somebody lifts the lid off of it, there can be some ugly stuff underneath there. So there's something more complicated about small towns than just the nostalgia and the good memories, right? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, I think it's that contrast between what is supposed to be this safe haven. You know, everyone knows each other or, you know, that 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 might be like the the really small towns like like Mayberry from Andy Griffith or, you know, Andy Griffith world um, where everyone knows each other's names. But even in a, in a relatively small suburb, um, you know, you're, you're at least on waving, you know, uh, you at least kind of have that relationship with most of the town. And uh, it's supposed to be this safe place. And, you know, when the darkness kind of creeps in. Um, and that's really what the book is about. It's about, it's about, you know, a 22 year old me, um, you know, getting ready to go out and face the world, returning to that safe place for a short amount of time, you know, his parents' house, the town he grew up in where everyone knows him and, you know, struggling to hang on to his innocence while the town itself is doing the same thing because this, this evil has, has invaded. So I think that's the the big thing, at least some of the fascination people have in setting, stories in small towns and liking to, to, to read books like that and watch movies like that, you know, and Stephen King more than anyone, you know, made that, uh, you know, made that popular. I think I know that's certainly one of the things that attracted, you know, me to his work in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, in a way it's, it's scarier in a smaller community because you probably do know the people involved or, or you're, you're, you're one or two degrees away from everybody. So if someone is a victim of a crime, you you know someone who knows them or you know know them or when they find the person who's perpetrating the crime you might be one or two degrees away from that person which you might not be if you're like in living in giant baltimore or something like that right so it so that closeness makes it a little stranger yeah i mean if you're if you're growing up in an urban setting then chances are unless you're in that very exclusive part of town you know there's a little bit of trepidation and there's you know there's some weariness anytime you leave your home you know, you people get mugged, people get, hit, you know, there's hit and runs and, you know, the whole thing. When you're in a small suburb um, that has a relatively low crime, which Edgewood did back in the 80s, um, you know, there were there, like I say in the book, you know, there was a wrong side of the tracks. So there were places where the crime was higher than others. But we really did play kick the king in, in the 70s and the 80s. We really did. Uh, you know, we would have sleepovers and we'd sneak out of the house and we'd be out all night. And nobody, you know, no one was worried about being shot or, or, uh, you know, stolen off the street by, by a crazy person. Um, so yeah, when, when those kind of things happen and I, and again, the contrast that with the Phantom Fondler, when, when that kind of became, uh, you know, very prominent, um, it changed the, uh, you know, it kind of changed the vibe around town. And, and it, that's, like I said, that's kind of where the book came from because I experienced that I felt it. And I just thought, you know, because my brain is warped, you know, what, let's make it even worse. You know, what could be worse? And, uh, and chasing the boogeyman was my answer. Yeah. And some of the reviews have compared the book to, uh, I'll be gone in the dark by Michelle mm -hmm. McNamara, which was about the golden state killer. Um, who, I mean, who was doing horrible things, but 
he was sneaking into people's homes like that. And to me, in some ways, that seems like the most disturbing thing. It's, you know, that someone coming into your house when you're asleep and, and like the, the Golden State Killer was doing it intent, wanted to do it when people were home, right? You think right. normally someone breaks into a house. They, most people want to break into a house when no one's home because they don't want to deal with it, right? But but someone wanting to come into a house just because they know people are there, that is in some ways the most disturbing, strangest thing to contemplate, right? Oh, he, he was terrifying. I mean, I you know, he, he would break into their home and then, you know, and do nothing and then come back later. Or he'd break into their home and hide a weapon sometimes, I think. He would he would hide his, uh, his binding materials. Um, and then the fact that he, he would sometimes, in, in a single block, he would break into three homes in one night. And the fact that he wasn't caught for decades. Um, yeah, that book is terrifying. Someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, what's your favorite? You know, at the end of at the end of the podcast, they had a bunch of, uh, you know, kind of rapid fire questions for me. And one of the questions was, what is your favorite monster? And they gave me a, a list and, you know, it was Frankenstein and, I, you know, and, and, and Dracula, et cetera. And I just said, for me, I said, it's always the human monster. Yeah. Um, it's always the human monster. And they asked me to kind of go on about it. And I just said, even at an early age, I loved where I grew up. But I was always thinking about, you know, you coming home from a, uh, you know, a, a late night football game with your buddies and and the windows are starting to glow in the neighborhood as, as you're walking up the sidewalk to go home for dinner. And I was always the guy who was thinking about, you know, who, who's behind those closed curtains, um, you know, because we're, we all on the outside, we all look the same and we're all smiling. We're all friendly, but someone's wearing a mask. And what's underneath that is is pretty t- terrifying. So a lot of my short fiction is about that is about, you know, the fact that uh, what you see is definitely not what you get in, in many instances. And to me, that's always the scariest thing. And, and that's, you know, when serial killers became more publicized and more literature was written about them, I was, you know, immediately fascinated because it was like, I knew it, you know, the, the freaky little kid in me was like, I told you guys. Um, so yeah, that to me that nothing's scarier than that. Cause like you said, especially in a small town, you're going to be connected to the bad guy one way or another. It's also interesting sometimes to look back because you're talking, we grew up, we're about the same age. So things that happened when we were kids that at the time we just thought were normal, mm-hmm. but now we look back on them and say, that's kind of not normal. Right. I had a really good friend when I was a kid and um, I mean, his dad was abusive, but when we were kids, it, it I didn't have a language for that, for like, this guy's abusive. And his dad was really nice the rest right. of the time, but he would flip his shit and be abusive, physically abusive. And so now like 30 years later, I look back and I'm like, wow, my friend was an abused child. That was child abuse, but we didn't have a language for that. And we thought like child abuse happened, you know, in some other neighborhood in some other place, not, not yeah, my like dungeons and right. Yeah. And the guys doing it had scars on their faces and claws. Yeah, no, I hear you. That's it's, uh, you know, that was another interesting with boogeyman, something I tried to kind of point out. And I think it's a universal thing is particularly in small towns or suburbs. No one know, kind of knows the town better than the kids. You know, right. they know not only physically, they know the shortcuts, they know the hiding spots, but they know, you know, they know things that a lot of the grownups can't don't even think about. They know, uh, you know, because they're scavengers and because they're getting into other people's business, they, they kind of, you know, I always say, you know, we always knew the best dumpsters to find the uh, returnable bottles. 
you know, to get to get that nickel back. Wow. But we also knew which trash cans in the neighborhood were always filled with liquor bottles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we didn't think of it as so and so is a drunk, but we always knew his trash can was filled with, you know, hard liquor bottles. We knew which parents beat their kids and not just a spanking, but, you know, really beat their kids. We knew, you know, we knew a lot of things that we shouldn't have. And we were young and, and pretty innocent. So we didn't do anything with that information, but we but we knew it. And to me, that's always a pretty fascinating thing because, uh, you know, kids are, uh, they, they see and they, they hear things that, that, that grownups, you know, often miss. And probably that adults underestimate kids and behave differently around kids than they do around other adults. And then the Certainly. kids see that and remember it and it imprints on us for years, but maybe the parents never saw this side of a person, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And especially back then, you know, now, now, and, and I'm a, I'm a parent to, to two boys, so I'm, I'm right in there with the rest of them. But, you know, kids, kids kind of have a, uh, fill a different role in modern society than they did back in the 70s and 80s. A lot of times you were, you know, you were kind of invisible, like mm-hmm. you said, to the grownups. So they certainly were more comfortable, you know, doing their thing and, and, and saying things because a lot of times they kind of didn't even realize you were there. You know, um, you weren't the center of every family's, uh, and I grew up in a great family, but still you, you know, your parents were like, all right, we're going out tonight. We're going over so-and-so's house for dinner, you know, make sure you're in bed by 10. Whereas now it's like, you can come with us or I have a sitter for you or, right. you know, it was just a different time. Yeah. I can remember but my cousin's house when I was a kid, um, the adults would party in the basement and they'd send us upstairs and we would listen through the vent. Yes. Because then you could hear the adults talking through the vent. I can remember lying on the floor with my cousins around a heating vent because you could hear the voices coming up and we wanted to know what the adults were talking about. They never knew we were listening to them, but they were downstairs drinking and smoking and right. and whatever. And we were like, Oh my gosh, you know, uncle. A great image. Yeah. You know, yes. No, that's a great image of all of you laying around listening. Yes. And that's how we found out my uncle was a serial killer. No, I'm kidding. We didn't find that, we didn't find that out. So you kind of, you kind of touched on, I just want to talk just a little bit about, your writing life in general. You've written tons of short stories and your short stories are excellent. You've written scripts. Um, obviously you've written novels, novellas, co-written books and everything. I mean, is it easy to go back and forth between the different genres? Like how do you know an idea is a short story idea or a screenplay idea, or it's going to be a novel idea? You know, how do you, how do you navigate writing in these different genres and, and our different lengths and everything? And how do you, how do you, how do you manage that for anybody who's a writer out there? Um, it's pretty much for me, it's pretty much just kind of ordered, ordered chaos. You know, I, I, uh, I don't have a set, I don't write on a set schedule. I wish I could, I wish I did. Um, but you know, the publishing company and just life kind of, kind of has never allowed that for me, or maybe I've just never been disciplined enough. Um, you know, I like to think I get, you know, a decent amount of work done, but it's still just never, I, I, and I'm a pretty routine person in many ways. So you would think I'd be the guy who would just get up, have breakfast, take a walk, go for a run, come back and write his five to six pages every morning and then spend the rest of the day doing, you know, what needs to be done. But that's never been the case for me. So, um, as far as, you know, a short story or a novel, you know, I spent so many years writing almost exclusively short stories and novellas. 
um, based on how much time I had available to myself because of working on cemetery dance. And uh, so it hasn't been until fairly recently, the last decade that I've, you know, done, you know, longer, longer length. Um, I had so much fun writing, you know, the last two projects that I've worked on were both novels, one with Stephen King called uh, Gwendy's Final Task, which is the third Gwendy book, and that'll be out in February. Um, and then Chasing the Boogeyman. So that, you know, right now, um, I have a couple short stories I'd like to write, but I, I'm going to focus more on, you know, novel length material now. Um, and the script stuff usually comes like a bolt of lightning. And it's it's just, you know, you know, it's a film project or I'm asked. Um, and I turned down a lot of film work just simply because it's not as, uh, you know, for me personally, it's not as rewarding. Um, a lot of times what, you know, what you slave over for, for a month or two is doesn't even resemble what is put up on the screen. So that, again, that's just me, but uh, I've had some fun with, you know, writing movies too. And you mentioned the collaborating, cause obviously you've collaborated with Stephen King. You've also collaborated with your sons on some stuff. Um, and you've collaborated with other people. I mean, is that, what's that like when, so like you're writing, chasing the boogeyman. I mean, you're the captain, you're doing everything there. Right. Um, but when you're collaborating, I mean, is it difficult to go back and forth between the collaborating and the, and the being on your own or does, does it, does the collaborating invigorate you in some way to go back and write on your own? You know, it's, it's, each experience is different and people have asked me for advice with collaborations and the, the, the biggest piece of advice I always give right out of the gate is just make sure that you're able to communicate honestly with whoever it is you're writing with. And that might sound overly simplistic or, or really basic, but it's a, I've seen too many people do it where they can't, you know, well, I'm not comfortable saying that you need to be comfortable saying whatever it is that's on your mind to the person you're working with. Um, I think that's the only way it'll work. Um, I wrote a lot of scripts with a childhood friend of mine named John Sheck, who uh, grew up in Edgewood, went off to Hollywood, became a big star, um, was on the front cover of Esquire with like Johnny Depp and Will Smith and was in that thing you do with Tom Hanks and a lot of films. Great guy. Um, and we wrote a lot of scripts together. Most of the time we, it was, we had the time of our lives, two Edgewood guys, you know, working in the, the world of make believe. And, and we were fortunate that we had a lot of, you know, different projects, you know, produced. Um, and there was a small amount of time where it was frustrating for both of us because we're both very stubborn people. Um, and he came from the film world. So he certainly, you know, um, was kind of the boss on that side of things. I came from the, uh, the literary world. So I was kind of the boss on the final say with, you know, certain aspects of that. But sometimes it met right in the middle and it was like, who's our deciding vote? So, and again, we're the same age where we came from the same neighborhood. So yeah, you know, we butted heads some and we, we look back at it now and we just laugh, but that's, that's, that's one situation where, you know, we're older, wiser and more mature. So, you know, if, if we wrote a script together, you know, next week, it'd be a little bit different of experience than it was back then. Um, writing with Stephen King was just, you know, a dream that was really like uh, the way I always describe it is just kind of like playing ping pong. You know, I, I, took my turn. I sent it over the net to him. He took his turn. He sent it back. Very little um, discussion as far as, hey, well, zero discussion as far as, hey, I'd like you to do this or this is what comes next. Once it left my hands or his hands, it was really up to the other where they took it. Um, and there was a lot of confidence in each other and, and just a sense of fun. So that, that to me, that's how it should be, you know, and, and a freedom, you know, to, to uh, you know, rewrite each other and then you know, continue the story. And it was almost, especially with the last book, because it was a full length novel. Um, it was almost like, uh, 
you know, it wasn't a challenge in that we wanted to like write the other person into the corner and say, aha, how are you going to get us out of this mess? But it was just, you know, I took in the third book, I'm not giving away any secrets here because it's part of the advertising, but I took the story back to Derry, Maine, which is where it took place. You know, my, my favorite book. And I didn't ask Steve, is this okay? It's just where I saw the story going. So I took it there and I sent it and I thought, oh boy, I wonder if he's going to like that or not. But I had the confidence to do it. Mm-hmm. That sense of adventure to just roll with it. And Steve loved it. It ended up being, you know, one of his favorite parts of the book. And, and he made it, you know, as you would imagine, so much better, even, you know, took it to, to further places than I would have thought of. So that, you know, collaborations uh, can be very, you know, use the word, I think, uh, you know, inspiring and, and re- invigorating. And, and both of them, you know, uh, both of those books for, for me were, were perfect description. So there mu- so what is in the water in Edgewood that you're having this successful writing career and Jonathan had this successful film career? I mean, it, you know, and then you had the Phantom Fondler. I mean, like, what, what's going on in Edgewood that all this wild stuff is happening? You know, I, I talked about in the beginning how it's very much this blue collar, you know, working class town. And that's the thing. I, I think a lot of my friends, you know, we got that from an early age f- through our parents and through uh, coaches and teachers. Um, and just kind of the basic, you know, atmosphere in the town is that, you know, we, we weren't handed anything. Um, you know, we didn't all come from great families, but we found a role model. You know, I was fortunate that it was my father and also certain teachers and, and a lacrosse coach. And for many of the others, it was a football coach or a lacrosse coach if they weren't, you know, if they didn't have a great family situation. But, we, we, you know, we, we, and I wrote about it in Boogeyman about how we, we kind of bonded through the idea that we knew we weren't going to be handed anything. We had to earn everything. And we knew how we were looked upon by many of the surrounding towns. And we didn't care. It was okay. It was just like, you know, if you want to put that, that chip on our shoulder, you can. We're not going to walk around, you know, worrying about you. We're just going to do the work. We, we kind of figured out at a pretty early age that, that hard work was one of the secrets, you know, and, um, even John and I, I, I like to tell the story when I speak to groups in Edgewood, we would, because of John's position in Hollywood, you know, we had meetings with some of the biggest studio execs out there, you know, whether it was at Sony or DreamWorks or United Artists. And half the time we were walking down long hallways to go to the studio heads, you know, palatial office and, uh, you know, behind some assistant and we were elbowing each other. And we always said, you know what, we're from Edgewood, man. We have nothing to be scared of. And that was just kind of what we took from it. But there was encouragement to to go into something creative there in in school or from parents or or was it just I mean was it more just the sense of because um, I grew up in a in a relatively blue collar part of Cincinnati and the attitude was more just like we're not going to put any pressure on you to be anything but just be something right and and, right. and whatever that is and you know and pay your own way. So, so was there anybody who was particularly encouraging you in a creative direction or was it more just find your own path and whatever works for you works? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of that came from the school. Um, you know, my family, I, I was one of five children. Um, we were big readers, but no one was particularly, you know, there were no singers or actors or, or writers. My dad was a huge reader. Um, he introduced me to gold medal novels and, you know, go, we went to the library, you know, that was a treat for, for me. It was like, great, we're going to the library. And then w- when I was older and I was started earning my own money, you know, going to the bookstore, uh, Carol's used bookstore, you know, was kind of my home away from home. And, uh, my dad was always happy to drive me there. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, you know, for me, I had a 10th grade, I had an English teacher in 10th grade named Richard Gallagher who brought in Stephen King's The Monkey. Mm. And we read that out loud in class. And I'm still, I'm still close with Mr. Gallagher. He, he just emailed me last week that he read the book and really enjoyed it. And, you know, we have uh launch or dinner, you know, um, fairly often. And uh, yeah, I mean, he, he definitely set me on the course for this. You know, he used to bring in his books, talk to me. He knew I was a big reader. He had taught both of my older sisters and uh, you know, he would loan me his own personal books. And I remember it being a 15 year old that, that made a big impression on me. Um, but there was just a good support system, you know, uh, in addition to John, there was, there was a, a guy named Dale Midkiff who, who went to school with my middle sister and, um, he went out to Hollywood and became an actor. He played Elvis in some huge miniseries. He played Lewis Creed in the first pet cemetery. He played the father oh, okay. Uh, okay. and he's still out, you know, in Los Angeles working. So again, he was in the, all the school plays in Edgewood high school. I remember him well, came over to the house, you know, often and, um, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting because we do talk about that. The alumni, you know, there's a lot of successful people who do different things, banking and insurance. And but we've had several professional baseball and basketball and football players. And pe people were like, how did all, you know, how did all this come out of this little town? And uh, I always just say work ethic and loyalty. You know, we, we kind of learn to lean on each other and, you know, not listen to all the outside noise and just, uh, you know, understood that if you if you worked really hard and, and you didn't give up good things would come out of it that's impressive it's impressive now you mentioned very briefly earlier cemetery dance this this might be the most impressive thing about you is that you founded a magazine and a publishing company that has been in existence for what more than 30 years now yeah i mean we're closing in on 35 which is like a thousand years in publishing terms that that you you've created this thing that is still going yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I always joke that I'm a dinosaur, you know, um, and the last 10 years are, are, are hugely, um, you know, uh, because of people like Brian Freeman and, and his wife, Kate, who worked for us for a number of years and Mindy, who, you know, everyone knows at the office and now Dan, we have two, you know, Dan Hawker and another Dan. And, you know, I have a great crew and anything you know, it's funny because, you know, when you're, I, I think our regular mailing list is 35 or 40,000 people. So anytime you're dealing with a, a customer base that, that is that large, you're going to, you know, you're going to run into issues. And I always just tell people it's never their fault. It's always mine. Um, <laughs> they're great. And, and they do allow me to sneak away and write whenever I need to. Um, but yeah, we've been, it started in 88, like in Chasing the Boogeyman. The first issue came out in December. And I talk about in the book how it was delivered to the house and my dad helped me unload it from the UPS truck and filled up those envelopes and sent them out. And, uh, with no idea, you know, I knew there would be an issue too. And, and I didn't give any thought to there might not be an issue three. I kind of just plowed ahead. But if you had told me then that, you know, there would be, you know, almost 80 issues and, uh, uh, over 500 hardcovers and a bunch of other, you know, trade paperbacks and chapbooks and all that. I would have just, you know, I would have definitely thought you were uh, a crazy person from the future. It's it's really impressive for any publisher to be around that long. And you're talking about starting back in the in the real do-it-yourself days where you had to like paper and like put it in an envelope and mail it and and oh, all well, that. I, you know, yeah. I spent my 20s. I always tell people I spent my 20s uh, stuffing envelopes whether it was putting the magazines in envelopes and mailing them. Um, but mainly that, you know, there was no internet. So there were no email lists. There were no email blasts. Um, we would buy, you know, mailing lists from different places 
and we stuffed envelopes with the flyers and we sealed them and we put the label on, we put the stamp on and we sent them off and we prayed that somebody would buy something. Um, yeah. So I, I spent those first 10 years just sitting often sitting at a coffee table for eight, 10, 12, 14 hours, you know, stuffing, uh, envelopes and, and hoping that, uh, we would get a good return. Um, and there was no, you know, there was, it, it was at the, it was at the birth of desktop publishing. You know, I remember using my little black and white, you know, early, 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 early Macintosh computer. Mm-hmm. The idea of a laser printer was, it was a dream. So I had to go to university of Maryland's uh, computer lab and use theirs. And I still remember the first issue. I, I tell the story all the time. It's a big sign there that says, please do not print more than I think it was 10 or 50, or it might've been a 12 or 15 pages at a time because it was slow. Unlike today where it spits it out, right. uh, the laser printers were slow. Um, but my roommate and I, my roommate who did all the artwork for the first issue, um, we went and we printed uh, Cemetery Dance number one, 48 pages, and we printed it twice. So we, we, uh, we definitely broke the rule. We hit print, and it was 96 pages coming. We snuck out of the computer lab, came back like half an hour or so later, and the line was all the way out the other door. <laughs> And we heard it as we uh, as we emptied it, but that's that's how the first issue of the magazine printed. But if only they knew those people who couldn't print their paper that night. If only they knew that they were <laughs> seeing the birth of this literary endeavor, they wouldn't have minded, right? No, I think they would have anyway. <laughs> yeah, they would have been pissed. So before we wrap up, um, just you mentioned you have the next Wendy book coming out in February. Uh, anything else on the horizon that you're working on that's coming? Um, people I'm should hoping, be looking out for. I'm hoping to have another novel, you know, out late next year. Um, and uh, I'd like to collect, you know, three or four of the the novellas that I've done, and then write a new novella and put together as a novella collection. So, and a bunch of short stories and introductions and afterwards. And you know, I've got two different film projects that could or could not go. So. Yeah, I mean, next year will be a busy year um, and a lot of fun. And where can people find you online? They've got your uh, richardchismar.com as your website. You're spending some time on social media, as we all have to do when we're promoting. So yeah, and you I, like to interact with people. I don't get out much, you know, and I never have. People say, well, how did, how did COVID affect you? And I'm like, well, besides making me, you know, horrifically sad and worried for all of us, um, it didn't affect my day-to-day schedule that much because I don't. I don't really go many places. You're like one of the few people who's actually seen me at a writing conference or a convention or, you know, a book fair. Um, so for me, social media was like, you know, I had to be talked into it, you know, 10 years ago or whenever it was. Um, but for me, I really enjoy it. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and it's, uh, you know, I've been really fortunate. I can count the people I've had to block in 10 years on all three, you know, like in, on one hand, you know, I've, I've somehow been, been, uh, fortunate to, to be surrounded by a really great group of readers and, 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 you know, other creators. So yeah, I enjoy it. Well, we're going to wrap it up, but well, wait, there's one quick question here from Moose Reviews. What is your advice for a step aspiring writers? Is it still the best route to try and break in with short stories? Any thoughts um, on that? You know what? I don't know. I, I don't, I, my advice is really simple and it's always, it sounds simplistic, but it's, you know, it's sit down and do it. And it's, and it's get that first draft down on paper. Don't try to, I, it, I, I made this mistake. You know, you're trying to be too precise. You're trying to be, um, 
you know, you're trying to reinvent a wheel. You're trying to be to this, to that. Just get the first draft down and then go back and rework it and rewrite it, rewrite it and revise it. And, uh, but getting that first draft is, is the hardest part. And then the other part, the other, the other advice is, uh, you know, kind of accept the fact in this day of self-publishing and, 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 you know, you can desktop publish something and make it look as good as anything that comes out of New York. Um, Except the fact that it's a long process, you know, you're going to have your speed bumps and, and where those rejections and those down days is kind of a badge of honor, um, as opposed to getting frustrated and, and, you know, wanting to give up that it, it sounds basic, but that that's what worked for me. And I believe, you know, I believe it's good advice. So, um, and as far as short stories, you know what, everyone's different. Some people, you know, some people kind of build confidence and build a readership through short stories. Others can come right out of the gate and write a good book. So that, that just, you know, whatever works for you. Well, thanks for chatting today, Rich. I do want to just remind everybody, Chasing the Boogeyman is out now. It is everywhere. It is getting rave reviews. It is an excellent book. It is a novel, but it might mess with your head and you might think it's true crime. <laughs> Who knows? But definitely read it and join that conversation. Uh, Rich, thanks so much for chatting and good Thank luck you so with much everything. For no problem. Good luck with everything as you go forward. 